This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Horns of Odin. Now, Horns of Odin is a family-run business, and we sell Norse-inspired products. Particularly, we specialise in handmade, handcrafted drinking horns, which I made myself. But alongside that, we have a huge clothing collection. We sell a bunch of different meads. We've got beers and ales. We've got handmade jewellery, books, artwork. So if you like the sound of any of that, pop over to the website. It's www.hornsofodin.com. If you, if you like anything, pop it in the cart. Use the code HORNS10 at checkout, and you're going to get 10% off your entire order. Now, that's HORNS10. It's going to get you 10% off your entire order. It's just a little thank you from us for listening to the podcast. The podcast is also brought to you by our website, NordicMythologyPodcast.com. Some of you have already seen that we've got a bunch of different merch on there. We've got some t-shirt designs. Now, we've just added a brand new limited edition t-shirt. So there's only going to be 100 of these printed. After that, we're never going to print them again. So just pick one up whilst you can. So the design has been done by last week's guest, Jakob, aka Raven from the North, who was on last week's episode. It's a one-off design. Just pop over to the website, have a look. It's Odin and his two ravens. It's a really beautiful t-shirt. I'm definitely going to get one. I think we've sold probably about 25% of them already. So just pop over to NordyMythologyPodcast.com and have a look and see what you think. Right, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everyone. Today we are joined by Matt Greenway, who is also known as the Saxon Storyteller, um, who is the... Well, you will all have no, like interacted with his art, at least, because he's the guy who's also uh, making art for um, our podcast. So welcome, Matt. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been a while. I've been pestering you for uh, for a little bit. I know you you weren't too sure. No, just leave me under my stone. <laughs> <laughs> just hide hide away and just work yeah. on artwork. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you your popularity seems to have grown so much. I mean, obviously you're you're a personal friend of mine anyway. So I've seen you on at least known your work from from the start. From you know when you went. I think I'm not sure how soon to when you started doing it, but I don't think it was too far off anyway when you popped up and, and I start seeing your artwork. And the difference between then and now is is night and day. I can't think of another artist that does this style stuff that I've seen that has improved and changed and just kind of uh it's just yeah, it, I mean full credit, it's just incredible, I think, the the journey and it's been fun to watch your journey as you, as you as I think as you've obviously clearly learned so much about the artwork as you've gone through and taken your own style yeah well it's not like a tradition like I think I've been able to progress because it's more like my version of it so I don't really do any of the normal Viking designs so I don't do any of like the normal stylized imagery that you usually see so in that way I've not been too constricted so I can sort of just knock out whatever I like so that's like that's a really easy part of it and then the colour thing is just something else that I seem to have like worked into. It seems to work quite well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it still has to. It has to work though. You're, you're, you're. I know you say it's not typically like, I guess, following 
the Nordic art style, as you say, but he still he still works, he still fits, he still looks right. You know, you still follow the rules that you're meant to follow, but have your own twist on it. Yeah, it's all like retelling or churning up like the sagas and stuff, uh, or like reinterpretations of historic artifacts is one of the things I like to do. But yeah, I, yeah, as I'm not doing any of the sort of like traditional knot work, it's a lot more the playing field's a lot more open for me to do what I like with it. Like with the sacred knot guys, they sort of they still work with the traditional sort of boundaries and telling the story, whereas I can sort of slap any <laughs> to, to work what I like really without any sort of confines of additional of the traditional art form. So I think that's what's the easiest thing. It allows me to churn out a bit easier. Don't have to follow too much. Yeah, you can do some Lord of the Rings stuff. Yeah, that was that was crazy. People seem to really like that. It's nice. I need to do some more. I'm just violently lazy. Too busy getting pinned down by me, and Matthias, asking you to do stuff. Last minute podcast covers. Yeah, no, it's just it's work life. Work life balance is uh, just chaos. So I'm not worked. So I worked all the way through lockdown. I wasn't furloughed or anything. So my real job carried on. So and got worse. So I haven't really had the chance. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost. I've lost even more time, free time to do stuff. So it's just as and when I can really at the moment. So so Matt. Um, obviously, you are called the Saxon storyteller. Where did where did that come from? Why why Saxons? Because obviously, there's so many people. Obviously, you do like Nordic artwork as well. But where did the name Saxon come? From? Why the focus on that? It was always going to be. Uh, I've always done. It's always going to be Anglo-Saxon. I prefer Anglo-Saxon over any of the other Northern European art. Obviously, there, there is correlation, and they do. But up against each other, I've somebody probably spoken about like Vendelier and stuff. It all becomes, it all comes from a root point anyway. But the Anglo-Saxon itself, uh, that Clausen artwork and uh, Germanic style one, so even the early Anglo-Saxon, I've always been more drawn to. And then yeah, I just started uploading stuff to Facebook, and the comments. Uh, whenever you upload something, it gives you like a name, like new author, and it gave me visual storyteller. So I just nick that, uh, <laughs> added Saxon to it because no one would Google Anglo-Saxon storyteller because that's just a pain in the ass. <laughs> and, then, and then yeah and then i just stuck saxon storyteller to it i get a lot of people thinking i'm from germany though so i get a lot of people like trying to speak to me in german think i'm from the saxon regions so, no, no, <laughs> so, um, yeah that's where it started off as originally and yeah i tried to do as much anglo-saxon as i can but the stuff that's there is quite scant in the way that you could put into imagery so it's a lot of like cloisonne enamel like mosaic style uh brute work the early, early stuff you can sort of just draw up, but it's not very much of it. I think the Vendel plates only have like eight, maybe 10 designs in total. And then they sort of like copy each other. So uh, that's why I just sort of, I do as much Nordic stuff, but it's mostly like the sagas, just reimagining the sagas. Mm-hmm. We've drawn the sagas and that, but that's the majority of the sort of stuff I'm doing. Yeah. I've, I've personally been trying to um, uh, draw some Bractates lately. Yeah, man. So Bracteates are these uh, medallions, uh, golden medallions usually, from the period 400 to middle of the 500s. They weren't in use for, for that long, actually. Um, A migration, it's migration era, isn't it, mostly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I actually have some images right here, if you can see. Okay, yeah. Um, so, so they're... Sort of like a Germanic take on Roman medallions that the Roman legionnaires would be uh, carrying on their um, uh, armor, and it's very obvious. Like there's some funky stuff going on in the translation between that sort of like uh, prototype, the Roman prototype, and then into 
the Germanic stuff because these these Germanic warriors who seem to have been wearing them as as pendants in a in a necklace, I think. Um, they first of all they have like some some like weird like like really deep esoteric uh, religious connotations to them. Like this is some of the first imagery that that we can actually connect to Nordic mythology. Like the death of Balder, for instance, seems to be depicted on one of them. Tyr having his hand bit off is also depicted on one of them. Um, so there's like straight connections to Nordic mythology in different ways. But aside from that, we have runic inscriptions on them. We have swastikas on them. And then what we usually have is a giant head riding on a, on a really weird horse. And often also to, to ravens hanging out. Like that's also a very common um, theme. Um, and, uh, um, and yeah, like the, the guys who were carrying these around, they were, they were like, have you ever seen Apocalypto? That Mel Gibson movie about, uh, yeah. No, so I, I don't I know. If, it. I don't know. Okay. So Matt. Um, I don't know if you remember the scene where like they're doing the whole human sacrifice with like pulling people's hearts out of their chests and all that stuff yeah, on yeah. top of the pyramid. And then they take that heart and they throw it in the fire. And then there's like some guy who's like sitting there <laughs> and like you keep going into some kind of trance while <laughs> like inhaling the smoke. I kind of feel like this is the same way that those those Germanic warriors wearing those pendants, those uh, Hebratic pendants, they, <laughs> they would have been just generally reacting to things <laughs> like it's, it's it's so funky like so much of that stuff that's going on in, in those images so funky um like uh, you know it's, it's sometimes it's really hard to see what what it actually is that they're trying to depict and it's almost deliberate too because these these people they know the roman medallions the, the romans their style is very naturalistic right they they depict um Basically, the, the the image that they create more or less corresponds to some kind of reality, right? Those Germanic funky dudes—they're all over the place. It's just like uh, it's like some kind of like I don't know modern art sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've always liked it. Like, there's like the proper ambiguity to it. You don't know because, like, yeah, the Roman stuff is like literal and realistic, and I know what you mean. The medallions are just and they're weird as well. They look like if you're looking at something on an acid trip. Like the faces are all sort of like it's like very 20th century like surrealism because it's all it's not like a true face it's all like, like it's melting back it's almost it is deliberate because they could definitely made them we've seen them the stuff they can produce that they could make something as realistic probably like they had the craftsmen but they yeah they are just really surrealistic pieces and i think it's the ambiguity in the artwork which is like was a deliberate thing so that it yeah wasn't quite, it was an insider knowledge it must have been like insider knowledge where that clan, that tribe would have known what that piece was doing or that person knew what it was, but for everybody else outside of it, a bit like the boundary has sort of become nowadays where it has its own internalised meaning. And um, it's only for that wearer or that person to really truly know what it is. Similar to that sort of like scenario. That's that's a good, good yeah, that's a good comparison. I like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you assume that there would be different art styles amongst the art that's going on. Obviously, I know with like Nordic art, you have like your main art styles but surely you know then they were talking about humans so there's going to be like that one guy or that one girl who's like i want to fucking do this and just do something completely different and it might not catch on but it still might survive and it might be just happen to be the one thing that we find and it could just be the 
the Salvador Dali or the Picasso of the of the Vikings. Surely those people. <laughs> Those people must have existed, though, within that any within any style of art. There has to be those outliers who are like yeah. going to do something completely different. What what you're saying is that there somewhere out there from like the migration era in the Rhineland area, we're going to be finding a bunch of like really really like intricate naturalistic art that like just you know somewhere in a in a field. But but all of what we've found so far is like the crazy Picasso guy from <laughs> from that period. Who knows? Who yeah, knows? <laughs> no, I think it's one of the interesting things with the Bratiates is that they often include the word alu, which um, has like this dual meaning. Uh, it, you, you might recognize it in the word ale. Um, it seems to mean alcoholic, intoxicating drink probably beer, but possibly could also relate to wine or um, mead or who knows. And and then it also probably means magic, right? So there's like this dual dual meaning to it. Uh, like I'm fucked up on something right now and it's totally magic. <laughs> that explained the melty faces then. It could, right? Like that's that's what Matt was just saying. Like it, it looks like an acid trip, right? Yeah, it's so, a weird it's the weirdest sort of faces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll definitely definitely have to pull them up. So the Saxons came from Germany or Germ that area, Germanish that, that area <laughs> of what we know now is Germany. So how come everyone thinks of like early English people as being Anglo-Saxon? Like that's what you like. That's what you tend to hear when you anybody speaks about like pre-Christian England. It's always Anglo-Saxon. Mm-hmm. But sure that's like half Germanic, so it's not really... Yeah, no, this is going to be fun because this is also a major controversy. Um, <laughs> the, lately, it has I'm been... I'm going to pretend that I planned that question then. <laughs> and I'm not really just that thick. <laughs> so the thing is, lately in medieval studies, in old English studies, um, especially here in the U.S., is certain scholars have been questioning whether or not we should call it Anglo-Saxon in the first place, whether or not that is appropriate, especially because in, in an American context, Anglo-Saxon is, has also for a long time been sort of like cultural code for like pasty white dude mm-hmm. um, and, and been an, exclusion, an exclusionary term. Um, it's what also we see- been picked up by like white supremacy groups well because you get like WASP that whole like white Anglo-Saxon Protestant vibe. Yeah. So you get that as well. Yeah. And that's, that's something that's, there's something to be said for a cultural standard that you sort of like adhere to here in the U S that is like Anglo-Saxon white Anglo-Saxon Protestant defined, um, which is actually a minority compared to the ethnic uh, background of most people in this country. Um, like just think about the fact that like 51 million uh, Americans consider their primary heritage German. Um, that's the largest group. Um, then you have 35, 36 million Americans who couldn't consider their primary heritage Irish. So, so like the English, that, that whole thing comes like way down somewhere <laughs> around 15 million or something like that. So that's that's actually that t- that says a lot about uh, 
cultural identities in general and also how how uh, cultural identity is formed uh, in context of like a an a primary established ideal right so how, how so but how much of that is is based on like a genetic level of what somebody because i feel like some people there's like they like to be one thing or the other so like if they have like a they, they might identify as being Irish or Viking, and and but but is it just them going? Oh well, I heard my grand my grandfather's Irish, so I'm gonna now identify as being Irish, or is it an actual genetic thing? So speaking about like white Americans, like the the, the vast majority of white Americans are mixed uh, ethnicities from Europe, right? So it's not just one. Um, it's not very cool pro- to be English, I don't think. No, no. Actually. Like that's, that's why I asked the question because I feel like if you had the option of being like Irish, English, like people just don't really like us. Well, so but that's another thing. Like actually, like it wasn't it didn't used to be that cool to be Irish. You know, it well, didn't used to be absolutely not. No, and the same with German, especially in an American context. Go back a hundred years, and and like. Being German sucked, right? And in the same way, uh, back a hundred years ago, like Italians were targeted by the KKK. Um, I just saw somebody posting about this on on Facebook, actually, an old uh, newspaper uh, cutout from somewhere, where um, where it said that the local ta- town council had voted uh, not to employ a company to build the main street or something like that in the town if they hired Italians, right? So like those things were also happening, right? And Italians were also being excluded at that time. Uh, Scandinavians were also considered like these weird Northern barbarians that, that, that should probably just stay over there in their little weird village, uh, those kinds of things. So, so, so that's, that's really the history of, of the U S like, that, that, that idea of like who, who's part of the in crowd and that, you know, means white in America. Um, that has like been expanding through the 20th century, uh, but started being very exclusionarily defined as English, right? That, that was the thing. That's the core of it. So everybody has like adhere to that English standard, become as waspy as possible. Mm-hmm. And um, there's also another trend, uh, old trend from the 19th century in, in the U.S., and that is the uh, adherence to the idea of like uh, French uh, uh, knightly ideals and uh, and all that stuff. That's for the South, right? So you'll you'll find because you know a big portion of of the South was um, a French colony at at one point, like Louisiana, um, and that's where you will find uh, white people uh, traditionally having associated with like French history, um, but um, uh, but yeah, so so that's that's part of that background of a, why there's a conversation about how how you can use the term Anglo-Saxon or if you can use it at all, and it is very much an American conversation. Like in the UK, you have a little bit of a different attitude to this. There are some who uh, feel uh, aligned with what we're seeing some American medieval scholars on on the English realm saying about this, they basically saying we shouldn't use Anglo-Saxon, we should say Old English instead. 
And you see some English scholars being the same way, like, yeah, let's say old English instead of Anglo-Saxon. And then you also see a lot of pushback because, you know, in England, it's it's a marker of identity, too. Um, the question is if it's uh, exclusionary identity, if it really relates that much to how people thought of themselves back in those so-called Anglo-Saxon days. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're seeing is that there is some tendency after Alfred the Great for kings, and I think also Alfred himself, to refer to themselves as Rex Anglo-Saxorum, so king of the Anglo-Saxons, as I think perhaps an inclusionary term in itself, right? But but there there were these uh, distinct ethnicities, Angles and Saxons at least, and if we go to Beda, we also see Jutes, that would be people like me. Um, uh, so, so th- there, there is a portion of of Jews from, from the Jutland Peninsula that have also migrated over with the Angles and Saxons, right? But Saxony proper is this like curious area that stretches from where Hamburg is today and sort of like down past Berlin to like the corner over there. Um, bypassing Thuringia and Mecklenburg Vorpommern uh, on the on the northeastern side of things, and um, we have Niedersachsen. Um, that's that's the the area around um, like Hamburg and a, and a big area around northern Germany, Niedersachsen, and um, and that 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 you know was its own kingdom and its own ethnicity in the 700s. The guy who fucked that up was Charlemagne. Um, he invaded in the 770s and uh, because he was like, these people need Christianity because they didn't have Christianity at the time, right? So he invades and, and you know, that's, a, that's like a, just an excuse to, to you know, take over a landmass that's right next to his own kingdom. Um, he does the same thing to Thuringia, right? And and so that's how then the Saxons become included in the idea of like Germans, like slowly. Of course, they exist as their own ethnicity, then later on as their own dialect and so on. It's still, you know, its own dialect in, in so many ways, as, as like Blattdeutsch. Uh, um, so, so I'm struggling to understand what the issue is with using the word Anglo-Saxon. So the whole idea is that Especially, as I said, in an American context, this Anglo-Saxon means white person um, and cannot include non-whites. That's 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 part of it um, in a cultural context, and so that's why. So what? Okay, so it's not it's not necessary that it it's not the right term because that's not because I feel like when we started this that that's where it was going that it was that for some reason that they didn't agree with that term because it was just technically wrong it just wasn't yeah so technically what you can see in the source material is it's not a prevalent tendency in old english sources to uh combine angles and saxons into anglo-saxon what you see often is just saxons I think it's because it's used now as a modern racial identifier. So now it's developed connotations. But I personally have no issue with it. I don't know if I can mm. argue as a white guy, but I, I think if you start calling it Old English, 
too many people are going to confuse it as the Chaucer era of like middle medieval. I think people say old English and they think of like sort of post Norman conquest. But I think Anglo-Saxon historic as a historical identifier, it still works so well. Like you still, it's still people know it as Alfred, but I think outside of a racial identifier, I think if you start referring to it as old English, I think many people will think of the knights and later periods like post 1100s and stuff. And I think, I think Anglo-Saxon has to remain for now historically as a historical matter has to remain as like the main identifier of that period. Even if they yeah. didn't refer to themselves, it doesn't really matter. We refer to the Bretons and the Celts. And I mean, I think we've had Brock on before. So the Celts as an identifier is pretty much bollocks anyway, because it's there's multiple different blood groups anyway. But I think it, once again, it's like with academia where the modern view of things is mixed up to the point where it sort of sullies original meanings. And obviously it can't be helped because you've for connotations, but I don't think we can change a meaning that quite a lot of people can't understand the Anglo-Saxon as an era of histocracy. So I want to I want to add something to this. Old English over here will be confused with a really shitty malt beer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but aside from that, uh, there's something to be said for um, like uh, asking, well, when did these terms uh, become established as like terminology that we use about like uh, this spe specific group and that time period and so on? Mm -hmm. um, and there's something to be said for the fact that like Anglo-Saxon is very much a construction too mm. in, in different ways um i have been recently been on a crusade to make people stop saying norse about everything that <laughs> comes from fucking up there uh, because because it's really a misnomer in so many ways um uh, like norse it is like a late 16th century english word for norwegian um, that has been under influence from Dutch and possibly also Danish, and um, and to like uh, uh, and then later on in in, in like English uh, antiquarian interests and so on, this word starts becoming applied to the West Nordic dialect in which like the saga literature is written and all that stuff. Like so, that's like Old Norse, which is you know a dialect that emerges in the 1100s. It's like if if you ever use the word Norse about somebody in the Viking Age, then you're wrong. Like this is plain, basically wrong because that Norse didn't exist at that point. It comes later on, um, and and so like that's a construction nowadays. And you can see like there's plenty of scholarly material that uses Norse frivolously. It's like your fucking Danes are called Norse once in a while. I'm like that that's that's just a misnomer altogether <laughs> the same with like, the swedes and, and so on and so um what, what the problem is is of course then that um we can lack clarity and we can get like these weird constructions where you know what if i personally if i was icelandic and somebody referred to uh my old icelandic literature stuff as norse i'd get pissed off yeah, yeah. I don't want those fucking Norwegians to to come and hog it all. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so that's how these these this terminology can also get exclusionary in different ways. And so, um, Mateus, yeah. I, I just want to pull you back to all because I think most people, or you see very commonly, the old Norse people say, "Well, that's what the Vikings spoke." Whenever they talk about, you know, translating anything into runes, it's like translate into old norse and then into runes and it, it seems like commonly accepted that like people in the viking age spoke 
all Norse. And yeah, you just didn't. said that they didn't. <laughs> so I feel like that's an important thing where you can't just skim over. Yeah. So we, and in, in the Scandinavian languages, we actually have a, a, a like distinct uh, uh, way of talking about these languages. So the Viking Age language. And again, like you can also go, uh, can, can we even talk about a Viking Age, right? And that, then we start like deconstructing everything. You can talk about a Viking Age. It's from 700 to 1100, period. Um, and what language are they speaking? Well, um, in Danish and Norwegian, we would call that Old Nordisk. And that means Old Nordic. And that's a, generally a common language. There are few dialectical differences between, you know, the different places in Scandinavian and North Atlantic, but this language is spoken. Um, but it's a common language. And then it starts branching out in the 1100s, become West Nordic and East Nordic. And this is where people are like, oh, Norse, West Norse, East Norse. No, West Nordic, East Nordic. Uh, you can call the West Nordic dialect Norse, but then you would be glossing over differences between Old Icelandic and Old Norwegian, Old Faroese, and also the Greenlandic Nordic language, right? Because they do have distinct differences in different ways. That's the same if you said Anglo-Saxon, though, because obviously with the multiple kingdoms before it became a singular kingdom, Northumbrian, Wessex, Mercian, like the dialects were different enough that that when scholars came to sort of cross-reference and try and write stuff up. I mean, with Beowulf, as we get onto later, that they think, I think if I remember rightly, it's a Wessex, they think it's, well, they think it's a Wessex writer of the manuscript but they find it might be from a different thing and they've completely fucked up the translations and that happens quite a lot that even just within england itself or what became england like the dialects were so different that even to class it technically as anglo-saxon when you're looking at areas where it wasn't always well it was anglos and saxon but you got the jutes as well then even that's it's a misnomer but it's a yeah it's a hard one to sort of like yeah and that's the thing right because yeah we have these different kingdoms um they seem to have had different identities in different ways um, you can always ask, like, where where does one identity begin and another one stop? And that always comes down to, like, also the people. Where do they consider themselves being a distinct identity in, in well, different I'm, ways? Going back, I'm to sure the they didn't consider it anywhere near as much as we do in modern day because <laughs> they had a they had shit to deal with and were busy not dying. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, like, we'd all be dead by now. Yeah, they didn't just sit in a. <laughs> Sit talking on a podcast about who identifies as what. It was, yeah, that, you know, I don't, think they had, I don't think they had time <laughs> to kind of consider that stuff. And usually, probably what the whoever was ruling the land told you you were, and you kind of accepted it. Yeah. Well, see, that's the thing. The, the whoever was ruling the land was not particularly busy telling you what identity to belong to. Oh no, they, they were telling more, you what to more, do. They were telling you what money. to do, and especially what to pay, right? Yeah, exactly. That was what they were worried about, taxes, right? They didn't give a shit about nations and stuff like no, that. Of course, they, of course not. They cared about the land they owned and what other land they could go and take. Exactly. And then you have, like, these different people, right, in a region or a village or whatever, you know, generating their little identity there, right? Mm -hmm. I think, again, that's something we need to remember not to put our modern ideas and the way we think today onto the way people would have thought back then and be like, oh, they would have thought this when, no, they just wouldn't. Um, so, you you know, you said that they obviously, I mean, it's quite obvious that they would have had different languages in Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and obviously in in England. How easy would they have been able to communicate with each other 
like how different would the the Scandinavian languages be? Would it be that you could kind of figure it out, or would you have to learn it? Would you have to take a translator in the Viking Age or uh, or later? In the, let's, let's say in the in the Viking Age. Okay, so in the Viking Age, uh, if you were from Denmark and you found yourself in northern Norway uh, talking to some other, let's just call them Viking, right? Uh, they would be able to understand each other. There wouldn't it's be a problem. It's close enough to, to understand. Um, it's not close enough. It's like literally almost the same language. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah, okay, it's enough. that close. The same with Iceland, the same with Sweden. Like you, and, and this is also the same with English at the time. That's the thing. It's, it's with you. I just didn't want to confuse people by you saying, you know, these different languages and then getting that idea that they're, they're completely different in the way that it's like English and French today where you just kind of, I mean, certainly for me, just look a little bit confused, speak slower and put a French accent on it. Yeah, so 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 what we're seeing with the, the let's just call it the Anglo-Saxon languages, language. <laughs> Hopefully we, we, we won't get a lot of problems with that, yeah. but let's just call it that. Like, so if you have some person from Norway coming over in the 800s, and they start talking uh, to to you. You're, you're let's say you're a uh, Northumbrian farmer. You would be able to understand each other. There would be cases where you'd be misunderstanding each other mm-hmm. because there's like tenses on verbs, conjugations, and so on. But largely, if I wanted to sell my horse to you, you would understand that I'm selling my horse to you. You might think there are two horses, but contextually, if you're only seeing one, then you'd be like, oh, it's one horse, because that would be like the differences here. Fair enough. So, get, jumping ahead of ourselves, obviously after this, we're going to record the the first watch long show for the Vikings um, series that we're doing. Now, what when I watched that, and they went when when people from you know like the the, the, the quote unquote Vikings came over to, to to England and spoke to the Anglo Saxons, I was always thinking that was absolute bullshit. I was like, fuck that, they won't understand them. What the fuck's going on here? That's, but it seems maybe. I was wrong for thinking that, and they would have actually been able to at least kind of get the grasp of what was happening. Absolutely, they they would they would be getting be able to do more than just getting grasped. Like they would be able to talk with each other in their distinct languages and largely understand each other. As I said, there will be grammatical uh, issues and some conjugation or syntactical issues that would make it like there would be sort of like the cause for misunderstandings, right? You wouldn't be able to be as precise. That's blowing my mind because I watched nine series of that thinking it was fucking bullshit. <laughs> I was like, this is bullshit. No way could they have spoke to each other. I thought that was going to be the most ridiculous thing about the show, but apparently... It's actually one of the most realistic things. <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> but that happens now, though. Like, if we went back a generation or two, like, if my great-grandfather from the South spoke to Daniel's great-grandfather from Yorkshire, like... It'd be a fucking hard conversation, but you just about get along. Like it's dialectual, like it's a dialect more than anything else. Like, like mm-hmm. Yorkshire now is confusing, but Yorkshire like a hundred years ago would have been more confusing. So I think it's the same sort of like similarity between the northern languages of that sort of era as well. I think yeah. even in even in like two generations ago, just like yeah. like Sarah's Sarah's um sort of family are all like proper nor like Yorkshire's you would get. And yeah. you know, kind of like mill workers and, and that kind of thing. And when they like speak to each other, I'm sometimes like, what the fuck are these words? And like there's letters being missed out here and there. And and that's kind of disappearing now, I think. But even just a generation ago, there was such a difference that some of it's like 
you have no idea the ridiculous differences there are in, in like the, the Jutland Peninsula that I'm from in Denmark. Like uh, traditionally, you go an hour away from from Aarhus, where I'm from. Like Aarhus is like the main town on the peninsula, right? Go an hour away, and then like the person that that you would be talking to if it's an elder person. You, don't understand the thing that they're saying. <laughs> like it's it's completely gibberish. <laughs> but they, uh, some of these things also come down to like how easy is it for you as an individual, right, to absorb that language that you that you're hearing. Like how how easy is it for for you to tr- translate the, uh, the 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 phonemes that are being you know thrown at you, right, uh, into the phonemes that you're uh, comfortable with. Like for instance, um, theoretically. Danish, Norwegian, and Swedish are interchangeable. Like they're they're just dialects of the same language, right? But you there's there's plenty of language speakers in those different countries that when they're faced with their neighboring language, they're like, what the fuck is this person saying? I mean, I had the greatest situation of that when I was at Midgardsblot uh in in Norway in, in 2019. And somebody asked me uh, uh where I was from and I was trying to say the USA. And they, 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 like, I was just saying those USA in Danish to this Norwegian person, and they never, ever managed to understand what I was saying. Like these, these three letters, <laughs> because it's just like the pronunciation difference can, it can be so big between uh, Danish and Norwegian, right? So How you have different to, are those three letters than in English. Um, so Danish, um, USA. Fuck off, I would have fucking got that. And I'm a moron. <laughs> I didn't understand that. So, so to a Norwegian, that's uh, or to some Norwegian dialects, that sounds like an O and an S and an E instead. So that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's like a, quite a shift in phone. I mean, but. Matthias, I don't think this was a, a, a dialect issue. I think this might have been an intellect issue. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to offend the person. But... You see, what I'm I'm staying open to is the possibility, <laughs> and that sometimes you're you're so entrenched in your language situation that it can be difficult for you to to sort of like uh, shift to, you know, a, a slightly different a different sound, right? Karina just said that it could have been an alcohol issue, which would make sense at Midgasplot as well. <laughs> that is also a possibility. <laughs> 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 All right, let's let's jump into the, the the bulk of the episode, I guess. Um, the most famous of all Anglo-Saxon sagas, I guess, or poems, would be would be Beowulf. Everyone's seen the Ray Fiennes film with the Angelina Jolie uh, cartoon character, I guess. Um, yeah, it's it seems an odd for for me, who I know absolutely nothing about it. It seems odd that it's. Or, or appears to be at least an Anglo-Saxon poem that is based on Vikings and in like Scandinavia, which seems a little bit strange, I guess. Well, it's the longest Anglo-Saxon manuscript. It's the longest manuscript we have in Anglo-Saxon. Well, it's the longest poem. It's a singular manuscript, so it doesn't exist outside of the singular copy we have. But we have, there is Latin-based manuscripts. And there are other poems as well, but it's the longest one we have. It's got like the most kennings for different things. It's the most in-depth. Because the Anglo-Saxons loved poetry and loved like words play, wordsmithing. But the, uh, the actual Beowulf itself is like, it's one of the longest we have. And it goes so in-depth into the culture that I think that's why it became so famous. And it's nothing to do with Vikings. It sort of 
I think it predates them ever so slightly. It definitely predates the Danish invasions and or the Nordic invasions into England, definitely, just by its writing. But yeah, it's nothing to do with Vikings as such. It's to do with the Northern Europeans. I think it's the best way to describe it. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a couple of things to say about that. Uh, there's been a long discussion in scholarship, like because the the manuscript itself is from the 11th century, as far as I remember. Discovery was in the 11th century, I think it was, yeah. Yes, we can date the the manuscript to the 11th century. And the question is then, was there a version that existed before the 11th century or not? That's always, that's like the, the, the most tiresome debate that we always have in medieval studies when it comes to literature. It's like, was there a version of this text that existed prior to the one that I have right here? Like, for instance, would you was, would that be like a written version, or would you just mean version in general, oral included? Could in be both. Well? Could be okay. both. Like, it really depends on a lot of things. Like, so uh, here's a great example. Like, Snorri Sturluson's Etta, one of our prime sources to uh, Nordic mythology, right? None of the manuscripts that we have are actually from Snorri's time. Like, the 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 oldest one is a is a century younger than Snorri Sturluson's time of writing approximately. So that's that just tells you something about like how it's always like an I- issue when it comes to manuscripts. And it's also, you know, if you ask me quite frankly, a pretty boring issue. But that is it. So question it seems, is it seems a, a silly issue because you would have to assume that the the person who penned the 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 writing was the person who created the story and they sat there and and wrote it and it was their original idea, not that it was like an oral tradition of the past when somebody writ, you know, wrote down the story. Well, we can. Why can't we assume that uh, it was an oral story that existed before the person writing it down? No, that that's what I mean. That's okay. I assume that seems like the most logical answer rather than it being that, that whoever wrote it down was a novelist that came up with this original idea and just sat there and wrote it down and it never existed anywhere else before they did that. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense, but it's not necessarily logical to uh, weirdos like me who have spent like decades studying this shit because, <laughs> and, and, and there can be many different reasons, but uh, here's a great example. Uh, with the sagas, right? There are two, there, there used to be like two main theories on the sagas. There's the uh, book prose theory and the free prose theory. The free prose theory is the idea that the saga literature was created primarily based on oral tales that were told for generations. And then they materialized to literature in Iceland. The book prose theory, on the other hand, basically stipulated that this was a type of literature that was created in the medieval period. They were primarily just like looking back to like little elements of knowledge that they had from like the the time period when people migrated to Iceland, but they're creating it in the 1200s where they're sitting there with their literary genius and writing all of these awesome tales. Okay, question. Who do you think when it comes to scholars, right? Like if you look at like say Norwegian and Icelandic scholars, like the Norwegian scholars, which theory do you think they would be favoring? And what theory do you think the Icelandic scholars would be uh, favoring? I think that Icelandic scholars would think that they created them and wrote them down. Mm-hmm. And exactly. Norwegians would be more of an oral. Yes, exactly. Because the Norwegian uh, scholars 
like the idea of, of these sagas having root in a Norwegian storytelling tradition. I'm not that fucking way... sweaty palms now. I felt like I was getting quizzed. <laughs> I felt like I was yeah, yeah, high school and I was yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very much being a, a, a teacher right now. <laughs> and and see, and that's the thing, right? So the book prose theory was very uh, favored by uh, Icelandic scholars in uh, the 20th century in general, because what it really then said was that this is Icelandic literature. This is fucking awesome, right? And so sometimes claiming like trying to claim an identity as a new as a new nation. You you want to claim these things as as yours and give yourself some history almost. Absolutely. That's that's definitely part of it. And there's there's a lot of things to be said about that. But the whole point is like my my the point that I'm trying to make here is that when we're talking about uh, those like medieval manuscripts and whether or not the story was created when somebody put that pen to the vellum, not the paper, the vellum, which was cowskin or calfskin or sheepskin, um, or if it existed prior, right? That some, sometimes also comes down to ideology, right? The scholar's ideology, what kind of ideological environment are the scholars actually like existing in and so on. Sometimes it also comes down to um a theoretical approach are we dealing with like positivism are we dealing with hermeneutics all that crap and really what that means then is that there is a big debate of whether or not beowulf is from the 11th century or from like the i don't know 8th 7th century or even earlier and even earlier yeah like the way i like personally i think I see it as so it's a Christian. It's definitely like from a Christian perspective, looking back on the old heathen, or the old heathen Beowulf, because it even makes claims like it's quite Christian throughout. It mentions Christian elements, but I think it's. I think quite a lot of people want it to be Bede because everything come, comes from the era of Bede. You got like Frank's casket, but it's definitely pre King Alfred. I think it's pre Alfred because it's the Danes are still favoured. Like it's like the Danes and the Swedes are still seem like favourably. So it's got to be pre. Danish invasion so yeah I think that sort of area is probably better I mean definitely Christian like Christianized area of Anglo-Saxon era or definitely written down in the Anglo-Saxon Christian era but yeah definitely pre-Alfred reign I think Bede's, Bede's area I think looks best as a sort of best area which I think is is that 700s I think it's like 700 yeah would that lean more towards it being maybe a pre-Christian story that then been ri- that's then been written down by yeah. a Christian and they've probably just penned in a few little bits here and there yeah so, so there there are several uh, uh references to what uh, what appears to be some common pre-existing mythology that you can see elements of in beowulf and also in nordic mythology um what 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 are the brothers names like there there's like the balder story is in there uh, but i can't remember what the uh, the, the brothers are called in uh, in beowulf like there, there's like a reference to that in 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 like just a little bit like a couple of stances. Um, obviously, what we're also seeing is a similarity in 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 conceptual poetry. You have kennings in in Beowulf, just like we know them from skaldic poetry. Like uh, the the whale road for for you know the ocean is a is a great example, uh, which is conceptually exactly the same as the way that you make kennings in, in Nordic mythology um, and in skaldic poetry. Um, and, and again, like going back to like these ideas like originalism and so on, right? So, so this brings up like questions for scholars 
like me and and my peers like uh oh um does that mean then that skaldic poetry uh sort of like has a genetic relationship to to this poetry in in beowulf like does it does it originate from there some would make that argument others would say that they belong to the same cultural sphere and then you have sort of like a branching out here and you have a branching out here but that would be my my favorite approach okay when we talk about this like where, when does that poem come from i i agree with you matt that it's probably from the 700s um and i i can't remember whose theory it is but some some scholar has this theory that it was actually revived after the treaty between Alfred and Guthrum as as sort of like a way to to be inclusive uh with uh, with Danes um and yeah no i i, I like that theory a lot actually uh, because um especially if you think about it in, in in general terms of like Alfred and his court being so focused on literature yeah they were they were very interested in literature in general they had a huge library too so so it would not be uh impossible for them to you know have an old text lying around yeah, I think it's in the Wessex dialect as well, isn't it? It's written down in Wessex dialect originally. As yeah. far as I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So to try and keep some sort of structure to to this, um, Matthias, are you able to give us like a quick synopsis of? I don't know if that's the right word, but it sounded right. Of of Beowulf, just so we have like a, a, an idea of the story, what it is. Um, Holy shit, I should have checked my cliff notes. Because uh, uh, I guess <laughs> I, what I'm most interested in is that it's it's obviously an Anglo-Saxon poem, but it's set in in Denmark, which seems quite peculiar, at least. Yeah, so so uh, the, 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 whole, the whole debacle is that we have like this Danish king who's got a nice little cool hall um, called Herod, which means... Uh, stag, um, and um, and that's in an, in itself quite interesting that it's a stag that we're dealing with because there's so so much stag symbolism in Denmark in general. Like from the pre-Christian period, you find stags on coins and associated with the royal houses and all that stuff. So there's something something to to be said for the ver- veracity as uh, as well of like these references to sort of like more uh, flimsy mythological contexts of the Danish area. So that um, leaned to them having at least some knowledge of that area. Exactly. It's, not, it's not just they've picked, because that's what I was kind of thinking of. They just picked a land that they know exists, but right. it's almost a mythical land because they've, they've not been there. Like so Shakespeare. Write, yeah, so you can write <laughs> this story about it because... Yeah. No, that's that. this is this... The the people who uh, who composed this poem, uh, the, I say the people because I I consider it a multi generational poem, right? I'm pretty sure they had they had specific knowledge about uh, intricate Scandinavian social and cultural contexts. That's very obvious to me. Um, in Anglo-Saxon stuff, like we have the um, artifacts. If you look at Raidwall and Sutton Hoo, that was either Swedish. It was either a Swedish craftsman or the Swedish variety of things they would have had a trading network that's pre-christian so the trading network between the northern European people was quite like it was there and there's evidence of it so they would have known the swedes the anglo-saxon would have known the swedes and back and forth so yeah yeah, yeah. 
this is like another thing when we see like representations of Viking stuff and all that stuff. Like, oh, Vikings came out of nowhere. No, they didn't. Uh, <laughs> like the Vikings were like, we know there are very rich ports right over there. Let's go raid them. Yeah, yeah, that's something I think to to maybe clear up this idea that the Viking, you know, like the raid on Lindisfarne, I guess, is the 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 little one that's pinpointed as the start of the Vikings. And I think maybe some people who don't know that much about this topic would just kind of go, oh, that's the first time they ever came to England. And that's like the first time they ever saw the Vikings. So I think it's quite important to clear that up and, and say, you know, that's not, you know, they were Scandinavians already in yeah. England. And see, this is this is where I'm like, yeah, I understand the surprise that is expressed in this literature from, from the English area at this time, because it kind of seems like um, there used to be nice, peaceful trade and, then then all of a sudden you see these like Viking ships coming and you're standing there on the beach like waving happily. Hi guys, let's trade. And then arrow right in your face. Like <laughs> it's, I mean, if anything, the, the, the surprise here is that it was a dick move on the Scandinavians to start raiding these ports instead of just trading that, that they used to, you know. <laughs> Shouldn't have been flirting all that nice gold around, should they? Well, maybe not. <laughs> You're gonna yeah, tease, so, if you're going to tease with all the shiny jewels and gold, don't be surprised <laughs> when someone comes and takes it. So going back to the story, right? So so this king in Denmark, he uh, he's he's got a problem um, because there's a there's this like monster that is a uh, is uh, harrowing his hall, and and that's where uh, Beowulf is then called to action. Beowulf is a git, so that is possibly a uh, some kind of subset, a subset of Goths, uh, Jörtar, uh from Sweden, and he he comes over, and if you've seen that uh, uh, the the animated movie with uh, Angelina Jolie, he's like standing there in the prow of the ship, um, being all masculine and I think probably also naked I can't remember and then he swims the rest of the way and also the Danish uh, countryside is like full of like giant ass mountains which you know is not true there, there are no <laughs> mountains in Denmark <laughs> unless there's been like serious erosion since the 700s okay <laughs> so, so you you've almost also got a protagonist coming from another land that obviously they must have known about at least so it's not just one it, you, you're talking about two mm -hmm. so so they they have knowledge of uh of a tribe in a region in sweden as well and yeah this makes perfect sense when you consider as as matt pointed out red wolf's uh grave in sutton who uh, where the artifacts are like almost like identical to artifacts that we find in Vendel uh, graves in the Vendel graves in Sweden, in Valsiera and and Vendel, and uh, so 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 what we're dealing with here is as we've also talked about before uh, when we talked with Martin Carver um, on on this podcast, uh, there is a cultural commonality here there, there, there there's a, a cultural relationship uh community you could even call it um a, in in the this northern european region these 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 uh the kings especially uh and other magnates they are trading with one another they're exchanging goods in terms of like gifts and so on establishing alliances and um 
and like, yeah, the thing that probably breaks this down is Christianity, to be honest. Yeah, I've always thought that. Yeah, because like, there's clearly always been trading networks there. And like, that, I'm not doing too much about it, but like, clearly that raid on Linda's farm was retaliatory. But I think that must, was there ever a severance between the trade because of Christianity coming into England? I've always wondered. The severance of trade for the rest of the Northern Europeans. I, I think I think they're they're um, so Christianity has the rule that you don't trade with non Christians. Yeah, yeah. So so oh, this, you this smells like bricks all over again. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking <laughs> shit! I, I like well, uh, okay. Well, I guess we're gonna get back on the Viking ships then. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we don't have any allies either. So <laughs> that's it. <laughs> no, so so yeah, th- this. There's there's uh, there's something to be said for for a boundary being set up here by Christianity because um, uh, at the bare minimum you would have to be prim signed so that's like a precursor to be getting baptized um, if if you would be an acceptable trade partner this is what we see happening a lot in the Viking Age a lot of like, the, those Scandinavians who are who are traveling to other uh, parts of Europe that are Christian and the parts of Scandinavia that aren't Christian, they will have to get prim signed. Um, so they do that. And that's also part of like how Christianity precipitates into the North. We see what appears to be um, like, so I mentioned how Saxony was invaded by Charlemagne um, and what he basically does there is to establish this precedent in European history um, that also becomes crusades later on. You can invade a non-Christian country uh, under the pretext that it needs Christianity. And that's the situation that Denmark in particular is dealing with, right? Because then Solomon, he pushes his border uh, up to Denmark. Uh, Saxony used to be the buffer. We know that the Danish whatever it is, central government, probably a king. We don't know if it's a king over the entire country or if it's like a local magnet or whatever. But we know that from Denmark, they're sending mercenaries down to fight uh, against Charlemagne's push into Saxony. They harbor the the king, the Saxon king, Widukin, um, uh, for, for a period as well. So... That tells you that there's a polity in southern Scandinavia that is interested in keeping uh, <laughs> a buffer zone between itself and that Frankish kingdom that is expanding northwards, right? Okay. So let's play back to, to the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we've got a, a Danish kingdom, I guess. They've got a problem with a monster. They bring in a handsome fellow from Sweden with long golden wavy hair because exactly. that's, that's what Swedes always look like. So so he comes he comes in. So where do we go from there? So uh what happens next is of course uh well they're you know they're hanging out in the hall like testing out the situation. Um monster comes around, Grendel, right? And um and um um eats some of the men eventually vanquished, right? And this is where I start getting iffy on the story. So next level is that um, he cuts the arm off. Matt, help me out here. He strips himself naked because Beowulf strips himself naked because Grendel has no weaponry or armor and he thinks it's unfair. So he strips down to his bollocks and then fights him and rips his arm off. 
That's how it goes. Say the arm and the the hall is like some great trophy of, yeah, of the battle. Yes. Is is Grendel ever a beautiful woman like in the movie? No. So that's that's just a a modern thing for the film. Yeah, the modern film, that Ray Winston one's like a really weird Freudian thing. So I think it links Hrothgaff as the father of Grendel and then it links Beowulf as the father of the dragon. But in the original, it's literally... I, I think I've seen the comparison that is that the three monsters seen in Beowulf match pretty much identically to an Anglo-Saxon manuscript written in Latin called Liber Monstorum. So there's three different types of monsters, the human or the, the human type, the bestial, and then the, the worm, the serpent, which you have here, you have the Grendel, which is the bestial, then you have the, uh, was it? You have the sort of bestial man, and then you have the mother, and then you have the dragon. So it matches identically to what the Anglo-Saxons classed as monsters at the period when it was probably written. Yeah. So that's where you have it. But the film is weird, like really weirdly Freudian. I don't know why they went It's a good twist, like modern, <laughs> for a modern era, but the original one is literally just man beats monster. Yeah. And yeah. see, there's, okay. a, there's an interesting element to this that, that seems to relate to internal processes of Scandinavia. We know that in the 500s, um, the religion shifts focus. Prior to the 500s, we see a lot of uh, uh, religious activity that is centered around lakes and bogs, um, ritual deposits of different kinds. They don't uh, they don't stop in the 500s. They continue into um, well into like the thousands even, um, even though that that's where everybody's officially Christian at that point. Um, but but there is a shift also in focus in the 500s from 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 that lake to the hall the temple building and and also the uh, well the king as uh, or the magnate the jarl as as like a an, an important ritual figure as well this is where sacral kingship seems to become a big deal in scandinavia and um and also his hearth the the retinue that sits in that hall and the stories that they tell. So that's like all Odin stuff. Like, you know, if you're reading the Eddas and so on, you'll see like all the Odin stuff basically mirrors that sort of like ideology that seems to come around in the 500s in Scandinavia. And this also seems to be mirrored in that poem. Like the, there's, there's this, this, there's this relationship between, between the lake and, and the, the, the hall site, the temple sites and so on. And there's something to be said for this if in like a, pre-Christian context, this poem actually addressing that religious shift, um, focusing more on the hall than the, than that uh, um, that, that lake. And that is why the, you know, it's the, the being from the lake is, is monstrous and all that stuff. So there's something there that's happening, um, which is quite interesting, right? Because that tells us then that, that uh, whomever composed this, in, the, in, in, in an English context where was aware of this and then seems to be framing all of that also in a Christian sense, right? Um, you, can, you can make it, uh, the argument too that that uh, uh, shift in focus in the 500s in, in, in religion in Scandinavia is also like paving the way for Christianity in different ways. Um, so, so yeah, like, like the poem, in my opinion, in so many ways tells you that uh, there was a very intimate relationship, cultural relationship between the British Isles 
um, the, the Anglo-Saxon area and Scandinavia in, in, in general. And this makes perfect sense because, you know, the, <laughs> we can see from other stories that Scandinavians have an intimate relationship to other parts of, of Europe based on same uh, migration era connections that are being established. So, so do you think the story could have originated in Denmark and then come over with settlers and then been told around the campfire almost and because it's an, an entertaining story it's kind of caught on and then being retold or do you think it would have originated by anglo-saxons of a foreign land so i think it's a i think parts of it could probably have uh like originated in scandinavia uh, parts of it are also obviously later uh, reworking. It's like there's you know reference to Grendel being the offspring of Cain, which is uh, you know a very like, typical uh, a Christian interpretation of of what monsters are. Monsters themselves, uh, in so many ways, have an important function in Christianity because they demonstrate uh, the opposite of God's law for nature. Right. That's what a monster is for is to uh, is to basically tell you that God's creation is this and this is an abomination. Right. Um, and that's that attitude is very present in the poem as well, which means that it's gone through a filter of interpretation, too. Yeah, it's also like they uh, was it they call it like um, is it heathen's hope and then they mock him for being uh, a brave warrior, but also for being proud of being brave the Beowulf being so valiant but that's a that's that source of pride as a sin so it's definitely yeah. that sort of christian like squint eye looking at it but like the sort of four like previous tellings of the story um so it's still a great story <laughs> absolutely <laughs> a shitty christian twist on it <laughs> that happens but uh, hey yeah. <laughs> so it's like they, they want to tell the story but also want to yeah, diminish it, diminish it a little bit. Yeah, it's still like in a, it's cult like their culture has varied slightly, but it's still culturally important. Like the Anglo, I mean, we I think quite a lot as the Anglo Saxons are looked upon as a sort of weak Christian men and dresses, but like this is a warrior culture, and I think the warrior culture, even though it was sort of by sort of at least by like sort of seven hundred and like later on, it was sort of like watered down ever so slightly, not just before Christianity, but once they settled, I think that sort of like warrior ideal. I mean, we still look back on the King Arthur and the chivalric of the like the post-Norman conquest. We still look at that like that chivalry sort of thing, and that's like that's hundreds, hundreds of years ago. So I think even back the sort of the Christian Anglo-Saxons would have seen the Beowulf and the early sort of um, warrior poet as still something to look up to and still something to sort of be admired. But obviously, being written by in Wessex by a monk, it's never going to be one hundred percent boasting about. The pagan Beowulf, or if it was a pagan, or sort of the pagan ideology of the brave warrior. So, yeah, yeah, and yeah, that, and I think this is a really good point, and it's something to keep in mind too. That just because they convert to Christianity doesn't mean that they throw out all the cultural elements that existed before. They Christianized them, and that's that. That's also what happened to to Sigurd the Dragon Slayer. He was Christianized. He was. Uh, and um and and we see this with uh with so many elements in the saga literature as well like there's even the, in, in the modern day you only have to look at like normal folklore so folklore is how i got into like anglo-saxon just by i really love folklore i love the folklore of england and stuff but i mean jack and the beanstalk 
like the most basic of things like giants don't exist in christian literature giants existed pre-christian era they were just became they just have got absorbed into fairy tales rather than being something of the land so the all these sort of things you see in folklore are they predate the christianity of this land and obviously other areas and that but it's just given a new twist on it but it's always been there as a sort of thing that we've looked towards but just given a christian twist yeah the best example is of course uh elves in iceland if you ask me yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like uh, elves in Iceland. They, they're basically just like the, the spirits of the land. They they were definitely there before Christianity showed up, and then you know in contemporary or close to contemporary nineteenth like century folklore, we get an explanation for why elves exist. So they were basically the unwashed children that Eve tried to hide from God when God came to visit. So that's like a that's sort of like the Christian twist on it. Basically saying, okay, yeah, so 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 that's why these these uh, 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 unseen people that live in the hills exist, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, you keep it, but we're going to just class it as something that's not quite real. I mean, that's yeah. what it became. Yeah, like you can have it still, but we're just going to say that it's slightly more like in the background and in the shadow, and bring more enlightened thought to the front. But yeah. I imagine that's something that probably happened slowly. I don't imagine that you just kind of, they kind of, the Christians went in and then stripped everything away and said, okay, you now believe in this or in, in like, in particular, the stories of the monsters, they, they can't have just gone and said, right, forget all your stories. So it seems smarter that you would incorporate them in some way, almost as a, a comfort blanket to, to leave something there but also in, then introduce the, the Christian side of things as well. Well, the thing is actually, so this is the interesting thing that, that um, I, I think a lot of people have like this idea that, oh, Christianity comes along and then you know, basically fucks up everything uh, of the, the, the pre-existing culture. And that's definitely not what happens in medieval Europe. To the contrary, um, medieval Christianity preserves so much culture that already existed because medieval Christianity is a very different thing than the type of Christianity that we're familiar with now. And also that we know historically uh, from, from our, our own mythos about uh, the modern era. The thing that really messes up folk culture in Europe is the modern era. Like in, in the introduction of modern institutions and especially industry is the thing that messes with people's culture, not just in Europe, across the world. Like outside of Europe, it's known as colonialism. Inside of Europe, it's known as like different kinds of oppression, right? Urbanization. Yeah. And that's what we have in England as well. Like you look at just the folklore we have of England, like only really exists in the rural areas now. May Queens, uh, sort of May Days, Morris Dances. You don't really see them in the inner city. And that's sort of like, that's why you don't get elves and spirits that live in the middle of fucking Hackney. They live somewhere in the deep dark woods of Sussex, you know what I mean? So, but like with, yeah, there's, with like Beowulf, like saying Beowulf, like these were, I, I still think even at the time when they were written, obviously with a Christian perspective, even if it was before Anglo, if it was before, written before Alfred, Alfred was known to have used the dragon serpent as like a banner, or that was meant to be used around the Anglo-Saxon period. Alfred's name itself literally means elf folk. So even during the Christian context, Anglo-Saxon, if we look at it as an Anglo-Saxon thing, even though Beowulf is a heathen thing written by Christ, rewritten by Christians or reshown by Christians, the actual elements themselves haven't changed at all. Like they still, it's very culturally 
part of the Anglo-Saxon era and Northern Europeans later on would carry on keeping it. Yep. Yeah. Seem, it seems like Christians are very good at kind of taking or using the religion to explain other things, like adapting quite easily to explain outside influences so that the people they want to believe in Christianity, it kind of gives a, you know, gives a reason to it. Um, so it's like those exist and we're going to adapt Christianity or at least incorporate into it so you can kind of believe in these things and it's going to almost it's damage your belief in Christianity because, it, yeah, it exists, but God let it happen or it happened for this reason because it's the, the children of somebody else. And it, it, almost the way that they do with science today, you know, you get things that come along that question it and Christianity is really good at adapting and changing and twisting to suit new ideas that come up and kind of disprove it, they kind of go, oh, no, hang on a minute. This is actually, this is actually what it meant. And so there, there's something to be said for that. Uh, in a uh, Yeah, an ability in, in uh, Christianity to adapt to local cultures in different ways. Um, uh, that's, that's not to say that other religions don't also have it. You can find uh, a lot of, I mean, Islam has been doing it too, uh, through, throughout the, 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 the centuries. Um, and, and you will find, you know, uh, just like you find the uh, Christian, um, cultural versions of Christianity, you can also find cultural versions of Islam in different ways. Um, and then do you have different periods where you see sort of like a spike in some kind of zealousness or piety or whatever you want to call it, right? Where like, uh, for instance, in, um, in, in Greece, it's, it's, it's quite interesting to see how this, the Kurbani um, uh, sacrificial rituals, they have like on and off, like they've existed forever. And there, there's a decent evidence to suggest that they originate in, uh, like pre-Christian rituals in the Greek area. And this is basically like you sla slaughter a goat and there's like a story that go goes with it. And then you have a giant cookout. It's awesome. Um, and like, so, so like in a certain century, you'll see the church like being like, oh, this is some old pagan stuff. We need to get rid of it. And then in another century, you'll see the church being like, oh, it's, this is, this, this has like references to, to Jesus and the lamb and all kinds of things and so on, right? So you go back and forth like that. And you see that with Christianity in, 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 in all areas and the same with Islam too, right? Like some, some periods, if in the 1700s in Scandinavia, you had like priests running around trying to blow up like the rocks that were associated with like folk tales, you know, these giant boulders lying around. It's like, oh, there's, this boulder is said to have been put there by a troll. I need to blow it up uh, because we need to get rid of pagan stuff, right? And then in the 19th century, it's like, oh, this is like an awesome folktale, guys. And like, here's how that fits into like this Christian worldview, boom, right? Um, so, so you know, that, that's how it usually goes. I think that's something to probably remember as well. The, the one thing I always try to re remind myself when thinking about this kind of stuff, that you're talking about, you know, let's say Beowulf was created in the 700s and then written down in the 1100s. You're talking about a 400-year gap. Now, it's easy when you're just speaking about it to just think of it as as that. It's it's gone. It's but you're talking of generations upon generations, 
of different people telling the story. And if you just look at the difference in modern age from generationally from today back 60 years ago, it's completely different the way that people think what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what's cool, what's not cool. So would you would assume that the same way over a 400-year gap, what was kind of the in thing would have changed and adapted and so the story would have evolved and, and changed over the period of time. Probably a, a little slower, though, because nowadays we have such oh, yeah. communication systems, so it's easier to confuse each other. But yeah. <laughs> Isn't there something that wasn't much change in thought processes when you come to sort of like, where it's all like ideals? It's only the cultural acceleration because brought on by the Industrial Revolution. Like prior to that, you see like Tudor era where they're still doing stuff that's very Anglo-Saxon, that's practical, like that sort of older era. The practices are still there. You still see sort of like very pagan, I suppose, pagan practices is probably the best way to put it. Even it's Christianized, like around the feast holidays and stuff. It's still very, I think sort of the loss that we've seen culturally has only been since the Industrial Revolution and the urbanization sort of era. I think before that, those sort of tales were, I mean, even the Anglo-Saxon Beowulf, I mean, there's, they would have known about, they, the scribes that wrote it down would have known about the Iliad, would have known about the Greek myths. Um, that was something, like, especially if it was written around the Alfred rule or post-Alfred rule. Like he was a well, he was a scholarly man. They had a lot of, they would have known a lot about the sort of Greeks. They tried a lot into Troy and that sort of area, sort of tried to be built in into their genealogy. So they would have known about it. And I don't think there's much, there's been much of a shift going down the years. I thought they sort of kept that same sort of mentality of warrior culture carried on until the point that guns were invented, I suppose. <laughs> Here's something I've always wondered, and it might go tell a lot about how the way my mind works. Do you do you think they would have had trends? Like do, not just like say in the Viking Age, but like any older civilization, I guess. Do you think they would have had the trends the same way that we have? Like what's cool? Like Vikings very much now at the minute is an in thing. You know, it's it's very much popular, it's it's on vogue. Like, do you think they would have had that? I think that's a, such yeah. a curious question. Like, do you think that you know people were sat around in camp in the Viking Age and someone maybe did something like, no, that's not that's not cool, or that like, oh, that's that's really cool. That's that's like the new thing. We're all going to start doing that as if like as if you wore your hat that way. That's fucking insane. Let's all now do that. There's two instances that I remember from Anglo-Saxon periods, and one is you have the um, the very there's a Kentish style that's like very recognizable Kentish style of brooches, the way it was worn. And um, you see that across the borders that was being copied. And even to the point where there were actual rip offs and like people were faking the Kentish look to look more Kentish. This is at a period when the Bretons and the Anglo-Saxons are starting to mix. And so people were starting to adopt this fashion. But then like later on, if you look into the Christian sources with the Anglo-Saxon courts trying to be like Charlemagne, trying to be like the, the Franks and trying to have that adoption of that sort of the I mean the way we see Anglo-Saxons went is they were trying to adopt the European look because the Europeans were the cool people so that's why they started marrying into Europe so that whole like trend set and that's existed since migration period when people were ripping off brooches up until the point when King Alfred was trying to be like the Holy Roman Emperor like or at least match him that's why they sent them there to sort of be trained by them and then come back and push that sort of cultural way of life back into the society 
which is why we see Latin being adopted rather than Anglo-Saxon, because it's a cooler thing to write in rather than the sort of like grunting German. It's not. It's a beautiful language. I love Anglo-Saxon. I think it's very, it's much like the old Northern European, where it's, it's really poetic. It has to be read out. Like Beowulf should like listen to Seamus Heaney. It has to be listened to. I don't think you can, Sigurd said the same thing, where uh, they have to be said out loud. It has to be a scopic, a bardic way of listening to it. I think if you listen, to, if you read it like Shakespeare, it doesn't mean anything. You need the sort of the literary thing in there. But we kind of lost that when like Latin looked cooler. So everyone started doing Latin. That's why most of the manuscripts we have are in Latin. That's why Beowulf is so held up. There are other poems, but because it's so long, it's such a long poem, it's so, it's non-linear. It goes back and forth. Um, I think that's why Beowulf is still held in such high regard because it is Anglo-Saxon. It looks on an older time and even though like, it's written in like an eyes, like I said, with trends, it was written at a time when Christianity was the trend of the time. It was meant to be, but uh, yeah, trends are seen. But I think that's why like Beowulf is so loved at the moment, or still loved. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And the, yeah, there's <laughs> so like, we all know Snorri's Edda and the Eddic poetry as like sources to Nordic mythology, right? Did you all know that there's like a giant thick book out there that's also a giant source to Nordic mythology as well um, that was written in Denmark? <laughs> oh, here we go. Here we yeah. go. No, it's, oh, just, oh, yeah. It was rolling, rolling my Latin. eyes here. Of course there is. <laughs> it was written in Latin. Like, uh, it's Saxo's History of the Danes. It's, it goes through a bunch of Nordic mythology in different ways. A lot of it is something that he gets directly from Icelandic sources. But he's also got some poetry in there uh, that was obviously an Eddic poem at one point that he then translated into some ridiculous Latin <laughs> instead. So, like, but see, it's a lesser known source because it's in Latin, right? Yeah, that's the thing. There's like the um, the Leiden Monstorium, the one that links the parallels the Beowulf. That's in Latin. I think we know. I think because Anglo-Saxon is so scant, I think that's why we know more about it. I think because Latin became such a the main predominant language. I think such rare pieces, especially with Beowulf being a singular manuscript. I think that's why it's been remembered. Whereas like the Danish one, obviously being written in Latin, uh, Latin's like. There's dime a dozen. There's loads of those. We've got a whole house of like monasteries. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, loads of people do it. But he was, but Saxo was, of course, writing in Latin because he wanted to make sure that everybody else in Europe could could read his rantings because that's really what they are rantings. <laughs> it's like he's basically Denmark is the greatest country in the whole world. Fuck the Germans. <laughs> that that's really what he wanted to say. It sounds like you now though. That's literally what <laughs> Danish outlook. <laughs> no. <laughs> Like, I think most Danes love the Germans. Yeah. I think that's another thing. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> that's the thing with, like, I think, with Anglo-Saxon we were talking about earlier. I think there's a worry, isn't it, of the, if you say Germanic, rather than, like, referring to the old Anglo-Saxons, rather than old English, you refer to it as a Germanic time. I think there's still, there's a lot of, like, it's quite raw, even now, to refer to it as Germanic. So I think that's why... Anglo-Saxon probably works as a safer. There's some weird hang-ups uh, about that, and also a lot of like loss of knowledge, especially here in the U.S. Like uh, people don't understand if there's like uh, they don't necessarily understand like uh, uh, what is the crossover between like Scandinavian and Germanic. People see these as very different. Um, I think 
I think it on. all stems back to the the fucking Nazis fucking everything up. I, I, just, I, I just think the, the word. I just think up, the yeah. word Germanic, even though you're talking about a time that's so far before that date, you know that even happened. It's still that trigger word of just even having Germany in it, and it. it I think with some people it just has that, especially if you're not used to hearing it and you're not involved in this sort of community. And if you're an out, complete outsider, you hear the word Germanic, and I, I, every every so time I do a read. My, my wife's face, every time she sees me draw down a room, she's like, fuck. Like, really? She doesn't say that at all. Like, she sees me draw, like, I do, like, an, an image from my father, and she's like, oh, please, no. Like, I think she, I think, like you said, outside of this community, I think, I mean, there's that bollocks with the Trump podium pattern looking like a Thala, because they're, like, the Odal room, because they're trying to bring in something that wasn't, I think, outside of the community. That, that link to the 30s and the 40s is... Because the swastika was an image that predated them. We had it on British military clothing. So, yeah, I think the term Germanic is complicated even now, which is a shame because the Germanic peoples were fucking incredible and, like, really fascinating. I think that's why I love the Anglo-Saxons as they are, because it's just such a fascinating time period. Yeah. It wars itself down into the Scandinavians and made them later on. But, like, the Germanic people were, like, an amazing sort of tribal group. It's a shame that to class it as Germanic sort of gives such bad connotations nowadays. So well, see, this is this is like the main thing, the main reason why, uh, um, you know, when when you're into this kind of stuff, you need to be really clear about how white supremacists can fuck off because they're the ones destroying it for the rest of us. They're the ones using our symbols, our uh, words, our culture, all that stuff for uh, excruciatory, nefarious uh, means. And... That's why we don't like him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Just that's why you know we've said on this the podcast so many times, and and I personally believe it's the people outside of this community that you that need without not not educate might not be the right word, but at least so they know the difference between the terms and what is what is like racist and what isn't and what's just part of history because. If you're not into this, all these terms just snowball into. It's like you know, anybody could talk about something that we have absolutely no idea about, and the you know, if it's the first time you ever hear about it, everything just sounds the same. Everything just gets entwined. It all just sounds very similar. So when you're an outsider and you hear these terms, they'll say, "Oh, well, they all must just be racist," and that's what I, I really truly believe that. Unfortunately, so that's how some people will just see it now because they see it on the TV that. Some asshole is flying a fucking flag with with something like Nordic or Norse on it, and the the news channel will say white supremacist fucking you you know flying or will will link it to to Nordic culture or Viking, and then in their mind they just go oh, okay, well then everything from there is now racist, and they don't think any more of it. They just walk on, carry on with their life. But the next time it comes up, they make that link. It you know, Viking stuff's racist and then it kind of spreads with somebody else and you don't ever really re-educate or change the ideas. Yeah, it's the same with like, that's the hard thing about doing like Anglo, like trying to redo Anglo-Saxon artwork is there, there's a lot of swastikas in it and they're like, especially the migration period, like they're quite well hidden. So like, that's always an issue like trying to redraw it because it's a shame to have to remove something because the meme is so like sullied because it's a fantastic image when you see it used as it is in the original artwork. It's a very prominent piece. I mean like, that's a tough, it's a tough one to try and reclaim that, though, isn't it? Was that, that? Re- that that's really a tough one for people to try? 
you can let there's, oh, I don't, there's no coming back from it. The solar wheel has been readopted, and that's sort of like it's working now. Drop the arms and the runes are going to be the seagull's always going to be a bit of one that's always quite contentious. Mm-hmm. I think Odal rune has come back now and it looks fine, but I think Sostaka is unfortunately just like lost of time. I don't think we'll ever see it again as an imagery that can be used openly in any. I mean, I'd love to use it in the artwork. I think that as a symbol of four, it's a shame because it's like a glorious symbol for for Nor. But I just don't think it's something we can ever readopt, which like really sucks. I try, I've tried to do other patterns that like resemble it, but not enough for it to be classed as, and it's still as as a Western Germanic meaning. It can't be touched. Like you can do it if it's doing Tibetan art, if it's doing uh, sort of a uh, East Asian art and sort of the Thai artwork, but it's uh, it's undoable now. So. It's a t- it's a tough one because it was just it was used for such atrocious things like me and Sarah were talking about it today that like the the Holocaust might be the single worst thing ever to happen in the history of humankind like it's it's definitely if it's not the worst it's definitely up there it's it's one of the worst things that humans could ever have done to other humans so when you get a symbol that is so closely linked to that and it is synonymous with it you know it's on the flags it's hanging from buildings it's on the uniform the you just cannot, you, I don't think you can ever separate the two anymore. You can't just take it apart. And it's sad, but equally, I think we just have to kind of accept that, that that's gone. And that doesn't mean that if you see it on older inscriptions, that you have to like attack them and call them racist because you're not. You have to also understand that there is a difference. But you, are, I think we also have to understand that going forward, it's a tough one to use because it is now synonymous with such a, such a bad event. It's education over ignorance. So that's always going to have to be a thing. You can't just be ignorant to something. You can't like cover your eyes and like say like, and sort of like fingers and ears. Like you have to just educate people on what the image, like what's happening now with the sort of the modern revival, second modern revival of sort of the Viking era imagery, like post World War II, it's re-education. I mean, York, you see like quite a lot of the runes around, but it's very safe reason why it's been shown. So I think it is a re-education of the masses needs to be done to show that not so much like a reclaiming, but just to show that the context predates things that were used for on the turn of the century. But mm-hmm. yeah. Awesome. Let's let's wrap this up. Um, yeah, because Mateus, we're going to jump on and do our Vikings watch along show after this, the first ever episode. See see what happens. I'm excited for it. Yeah, no, me too. I, uh, yeah, I'm so much looking forward to this. <laughs> Yeah, um, Matt, you can stick around and watch with us if you want. I'm going to bed, mate. I'm an <laughs> uh, No, thank you, thank you very much for for joining us. Not at um, all. And thank you very much, you know, for all the work you do for us. Obviously, people can get your work on our t-shirts. You do all the artwork. You do an amazing amount of artwork for us behind the scenes. And you are truly, you know, a member of like the like what the, the people that go into making the pockets obviously me and my just sit here and speak but obviously the, the, you know the you behind with the artwork the shannon does the editing there's there's harrington that does the you know sits in and producers there's there's, there's much more than just man and my taste is ugly mug speaking about bullshit <laughs> <laughs> so no you know huge thank you to everything you do um yeah, and like someone said, they, they love your artwork in the in the chat, which is true. I, I you know I love your artwork. I think you have a very unique style, which is so important today as well. You know, it's easy to to copy what's gone before and lose individuality, 
mm. where they think it's important to, to well, with what or at least I think what you do is you look at the old stuff, interpret it into your own work, but you also yeah. keep individuality in that in the sense that you can, you know, I can pick your work out of anywhere. I think most people can because you've got your own style, but also have the the history behind it as well, which I think is really cool. I think that's probably yeah. why your your artwork has blown up so much recently and it's re- doing so well. Yeah, it's called saturation. Just fucking upload enough until it's just in everyone's eyes. <laughs> hey, throw enough shit on a wall and something's going to stick, mate. Yeah, mate, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Just want to do something again in the future about Anglo-Saxon migration era. Cause that'd be, that'd be good. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, any any time. Um, give people a shout out. Let them know where they can find your, your work. Anyone who's not already familiar with it, like I said, they've seen it on our artwork, but you've got so much more than that. You've got your own stuff. You've got a lot of the rings interpreted stuff going on in there, you know? Yeah. yeah find me at the Saxon Storyteller. Um, that's just on Instagram. That's the only place you'll find me. Um, I don't have the time to be doing anything anywhere else. There's links on my bio if you want to buy any stuff. Um, and yeah, that's about it, really. I try and upload as much as I can when I can. I uploaded some this evening. And then, um, yeah. Awesome, man. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having no me. No problem. Matthias, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Instagram by my name, Matthias Norvig. Um, yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> that's it. Up to me. <laughs> well, I mean, you can always give me a list of things you'd like me to, to rent off. If I wrote, I, I've wrote a little list now, so I'm getting, I feel like I'm getting good at it. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> no, so if you, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review. Usually it's best on um, iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It's the best place where people are going to see it and find it. Leaving a review helps people find the podcast. So if you can leave us a five-star rating and a positive review, that would be awesome. Obviously, if you want to support the show further, you can find us on Patreon. It's just the Nordic Mythology Podcast on there. You get access to a bunch of material. But more importantly, now we're going to start the, the Vikings watch-along show where me and Matthias are going to sit down and watch an episode from the Vikings talk about it we're gonna have a laugh it's gonna be light-hearted it's gonna be good fun but we're also gonna learn a lot about what's real what's not real apparently they can all fucking speak to each other which is still blowing my mind (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah no that's gonna be fun you get that at any level on patreon whether it's the 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 five pound a month or the 20 pound a month you're gonna get access to that extra show we're gonna record that after the main show every week so come along watch the main show then jump in and watch that with us after uh you can find us on facebook Nordic Mythology Podcast, Instagram, the same. And then obviously our website, if you want to pick up any merch, you have the beautiful T-shirts that Matt did for us. The Stag and the Snake, I think, is my favourite T-shirt that I've ever, you know, I've been involved in printing. That's with Horns of Odin and Nordic Mythology Podcast. Are you going to send any of those to me, by the way? I am, yes. (laughs) I'm just keeping them all. No, no, yeah, you are going to get some for sure. (laughs) Um, Let's not talk about that on air. (laughs) <laughs> no, just calling me out like that no no they somewhere on their way to you um yeah no i like I said that's one of my favorite like maybe my favorite t-shirt that i've ever printed and i think you absolutely fucking knocked it out of the park with that design the colors yeah, are beautiful the, the colors are beautiful it's 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 yeah it's awesome man so thank you for doing that oh, pleasure. Thank- and I'm just like, I'm just waiting to be wearing it. Like that, that's like, I've been. Yeah, me too. All I do. <laughs> oh, the, the sat behind me as well. It's, just been that in, it's been that busy that I haven't been able to tell Sarah to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, I'm getting me in trouble. <laughs>
<laughs> right. No, thank you very much. Thank you for everyone that's, that's listened, and we will see you next week. Bye. Thank you.